Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good morning, good Friday morning. Uh, we have back as a return guest today, Miss Lindsay Cooper, the owner of Identity Dance Company in Springfield, Oregon. And today we're gonna have a different kind of discussion with Lindsay. Today she's going to share some very personal information, some very real information about her experiences and surviving and overcoming a period of life, a period of time in her life uh, from sex trafficking. And we want to pay attention to her story. We want to give, a, give her our attention and to listen to how subtly, how easily that kind of experience can come upon someone even before they know that experience it. That, that they're in the midst or the stream of that kind of experience. So with that said, Lindsay, thank you. Welcome to Molina Leadership and Business Development Facebook page. We are, this is an issue of leadership. This is an issue of you are a business owner, you have overcome much, you have been successful, and you have come out of the darkness, you have come out of much pain, and you have have an opportunity to have impact over many lives and this is why we're having this discussion today mm -hmm. because you have something to say and we you have something to say that we need to hear so thank you for being here you are so welcome <laughs> so let's get started talk to us a little bit about how it all began and when you realized uh, what was what was transpiring in that season of your life yeah um so in that season of my life, it was, uh, I was about uh, 20, 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, and I had begun to um, just be involved with the wrong crowd. Um, you know, I think everybody at some point in their life um, has friends that are a little wild, and um, I just got really caught up in that. Um, at the same time, I was really trying to pursue a career in dance. I was trying out for a lot of different things. I was training really hard. I was um, doing all the things and the checks and balances that it took to make something of my, my dance ability. And I just kept um, getting closed doors, rejection after rejection. Um, I, was re I was experiencing um, really tough rejection also in my personal life, just with um, dating and, and, and relationships and um, just really struggling to find a place to fit in. And um, the place, unfortunately, that I fit in really well was in the party scene and um, drinking and, and going out all the time and experimenting with different, different drugs and, and so forth. Um, so at that point in my life, around 1920, I began to really lose um, just a sense of um, who I was and purpose for my life. Um, I really began to lose passion for anything other than um, really just being wild and um, going out all the time. So fast forward um, a year to when I turned 21 and I was um, still in that lifestyle, um, but unfortunately that lifestyle caught up with me and I was um, unable to hold uh, jobs very well. Um, in fact, I was fired from two jobs in a row just because of irresponsibility and not being able to show up on time because I had um, partied the night before. I mean, um, you know, these aren't, this isn't rocket science, like, you know, A plus 
B equals C, like you don't, you're not responsible, you're gonna suffer consequences. So um, I experienced a getting let go from two uh, jobs in a row. And, you know, that does not look good on a resume. And, um, you know, I performed my jobs well while I was there. It was just getting me there was, was, a, was a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so after I lost that second job, um, I remember being on the phone with my friend and just telling her, you know, I just wish I could get out of here. I wish I could start over. I wish I wasn't like failing at everything. Um, and at that point too, to give you a little bit of more of a backstory on my dance, I had actually quit dance and made a vow to myself that I would never set foot on a dance floor ever again. Um, I know that sounds dramatic, but I'm a dramatic person. So I, I have to go to the extreme to hold, hold myself accountable. So I just was sick of um, facing rejection and I thought, well, maybe this is just not cut out. I'm not cut out for this, so I'll just quit. So um, anyway, I um, you know just tried to forget about everything that was going on in my life and how discouraged I was and what, how much of a failure I felt like I was. And um, I did what I always did, which is just go and, and get drunk and try to forget about it. And, um, and unfortunately, the next day, I still woke up jobless and somewhat hopeless. Um, so, so yeah, my, my roommate at the time came to me and said, hey, I've got this really cool job opportunity for you. And it's, um, you're just going to love it. And she just sold me on it right away. She just said that I get to travel and go all to all these great amazing places and that this guy is so cool and he'll treat you so good and you'll make lots of money so i was sold at travel and lots of money (laughs) i mean i'm not a materialistic person i really am not i didn't grow up um, being raised to be materialistic um but at that point in my life I mean, I had no job. So if somebody's promising me a lot of money, then I'm excited about that. And it sounded super professional and that it would just be like a life experience. So I said, hey, introduce me and let's go. So this guy um, took me to lunch at right here in Eugene at McMinimins um, North Bank. And, you know, my 21-year-old self, um, really did not see any issues or problems um, within that luncheon. Um, but I also was very naive. I was, um, I wouldn't have known 20 years ago that, um, that people could recruit you or groom you or coerce you into, into a lifestyle um, of that nature. So yeah, I just um, got excited about what the trip entailed and that I would be gone for six months and that we would travel to 16 different states across um, America. And um, I just got really excited. And he was completely, he had me sold. Um, he was very good looking. He was 13 years older than me. Um, he looked successful. He dressed successful. So I just said, man, I need to link arms with this guy. He's going to, he's going to launch me into the next like season of my life. And so um, I said, yes. And I had two weeks to get my things in order and um, pack and we were off. And 
I remember um, not one person questioning me about what I was doing. Um, that may have been for two reasons. It may have been because nobody else thought anything of it. Um, it could have been because people just really didn't question my decisions. I was, I was going to do what I was going to do. And um, including my parents, I was a very um, strong-willed child. And they knew that I was an adult. And they just let me make my own decisions, um, as heartbreaking as it probably was for them to watch um, this situation uh, unfold. Um, I remember uh, on the day we left, I uh, went over to my parents to say goodbye with, with him. And he had um, told my dad that I wouldn't need a cell phone. And, and again, now you look at that and you're like, hello, red flag. but. Um, you know, for me, I just thought, oh, well, good. We can shut my cell phone off and I don't have to pay the bill for a couple of months. Um, so again, I just, I looked at things so differently um, when things were being um, revealed in front of me, but I just, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known. Um, so I'll also say um, too, in the couple weeks uh, that I had been preparing to leave, um, he definitely, uh, gosh, what's the word, um, groomed me, I guess is the word that they use in the trafficking world right now. Um, but he, I like to use the word like schmooze <laughs> because it's a silly word, but he took me out to meals. Um, he took me shopping, got my hair done, my nails done. Um, he said things like, you got to look good if you're going to work for me. Um, he one instance I remember he took me to Victoria's Secret and watched me pick out like bras and underwear and that was really it never once was it uncomfortable for me it it did not occur to me that this was completely inappropriate for someone I had just met um, he had a way of manipulating his behavior to get you to respond in a certain way. So he was very good at this. He made it seem like he really liked me and he just wanted to buy me whatever I needed. He basically made it seem like these are necessities and I'm just gonna pay for them for you. And so, I mean, what young girl doesn't want gifts and things? I mean, at the time it just seemed like, awesome, I'm getting all this stuff for free. So. I, uh, we set out on our, on our trip and the first destination was Colorado and um, we got there, got settled in and he took me out to dinner and he knew that, he knew very well that I liked to drink and that I was a party girl. And I had actually really hoped that this trip was going to pull me away from that. And um, secretly deep down, I had made kind of a internal, maybe promise to myself that this was going to be my chance to come away from all that and to not do that. But um, he, again, he just really knew how to manipulate me and how to coerce me and convince me that everything was fine because he was a safe place for me. Um, <clears throat> so uh, he bought me a drink with dinner that turned into two that turned into three and on and on. And then we ended up sleeping together that night. Um, and I'll, and I'll say too, I don't always say this 
um, in my story, but I will say this small detail that I agreed to with going on this trip was that he said he was going to be booking me my own hotel room at every place we went. And lo and behold, we get to the first place and I do not have my own hotel room. And he said it was because he wanted to save money, but that he would get two beds, you know, things like that. So he really was good at telling me that this is the way it needs to be because just because. So I believed him. Um, so I was forced to stay in a hotel room with him. And anyway, so that happens the next morning as any probably person with any sort of moral compass would do. I felt terrible. I had so much guilt and shame. Again, I was trying so hard to come away from this life. That is who I was back home. I thought, I've just really messed this up big time. Like, this is not okay. This makes me so uncomfortable. And so I called my roommate, the one who had set up the, the job for me. And after listening to me for a few minutes, she just said to me, well, Lindsay, that's just part of it. And I said, what's part of it? And he's like, or she said, I just, just that, like, that's just kind of goes along with it. And I just remember not even knowing what to say. I was completely speechless. I just listened to what she was saying. And I just, you know, your mind is spinning. Like, really? Like, that's what I just committed to signing up for. And so then I imagined with her still on the phone, I imagined what it would be like for me to say no to this and be and demand that I be sent back home. And all I could see was failure again. Um, this not working out, me not getting the chance to go away from my life. I had nothing to go home to. I had no, I had no job. I had, I had nothing. So I just did what she suggested I do. And that is just try not to think about it. And so I did. And I just stayed. And the first several weeks, because he was so good at manipulating and building a false sense of trust with me towards him, he really turned up the heat on pretending like we were in some sort of weird relationship. And I say weird because it wasn't like we were dating um, or that I was his girlfriend. It, but he treated me as if I was, but then I had to work for him during the day, which was also so weird um, looking back on it. Um, at the time, I really just felt like this was just something I needed to get through and endure. Um, 20 years ago, if people are listening to this and they're like, why in the world would you have stayed? I did not even know that the word trafficking was a word. Like I didn't know what that was. Um, call me sheltered, call me naive, whatever. But in 2000, I mean, unless you were directly working with 
victims or survivors or anything like that. I don't think, because their social media wasn't a thing. All you had was the news and they didn't report on stuff like that. Um, or if they did, I definitely missed it. I guess if I were to use a word to describe what I was doing, I would have chosen prostitution. Um, but at the same time, like I said, he, he never made made it seem like that was what it was. Of course he didn't because that's illegal. So he made me feel like this was all normal. Um, so here I am about two and a half months into, into the, the six month um, period of time that I was to be working for him. And things had just gotten really hard for me. Um, it was really hard for me to be by myself every day and just with him. Um, I spent a good portion of the day, probably from about nine o'clock in the morning until five o'clock in the evening, just driving him around to appointments and then sitting in the car and waiting for him while he did appointments. So I was bored out of my mind. I mean, talk about, I am so extroverted. I am so social. I am, I am so like, I love people and I just, interacted with no one and saw no one. Um, I was at his beck and call for everything. Um, I did legitimately work for him. I did paperwork for him after his appointments. I, I made phone calls. I confirmed his appointments. I washed his laundry. Um, I ironed his shirts, you know, all the things that I had legitimately signed up for, but I also was definitely there to, um, to be a, sexual companion for him. And after a while, again, remember what my roommate told me to do, which was just not think about it. You know, after so many months of, of not thinking about it, it's hard not to think about it. That <laughs> um, maybe there's something more and that I don't want to be here anymore. Um, Again, so two and a half months in, he had definitely shown his true colors on several occasions. He was a very angry person. Um, he has a lot of issues. Um, I could see them very in real, in real form. He would get angry at me a lot. Nothing I ever did was good enough for him. Um, but yet he was treating me as if he needed me and that I couldn't go anywhere because he was all I had. So it's a, definitely a mind game um, manipulation because then you feel like you're not worthy of anything better, but you're not even good enough for him, but he's your only option. So it's, it's abuse. It's, it's mental, emotional, verbal abuse. Um, not to mention just the, the day in and day out, the, the part of me that used to shine so bright and or feel like there was so much hope or purpose for life just that light switch had just completely dimmed and um, it was just very dark dark time um there's a lot about this that i do not remember and that's totally okay <laughs> for me um and you know I think that I would speak to anybody in situations like this, whether it be domestic abuse, whether it be sex trafficking, whether it be any sort of lifestyle that um, causes you to um, be isolated or feel like you're not worthy. 
um, it just does something to a person. It really does something to you mentally. It does something to you emotionally where you just, you just turn off. And that was, that was really what I was, is I was very numb and just shut down. So um, I remember keeping a journal and um, I believe that I did that. Now I look back on it and just believe that, you know, I kept that to normalize what was happening. And um, I only wrote for the most part about where we were going and what we were doing um, just to try to think of like the good things that were happening um, because he did take me to some amazing places and I saw some really, really cool things um, across our country, but it was very, very taxing. So at that point, uh, the two and a half month mark, I was so tired. Um, and then that went on for another month and a half or so. And so we're now at four months. Um, I've been with him and I still have two months to go. I'm literally counting down the days. I do not want to be there anymore. Um, he does not let me talk to people. Um, my parents would call. He would forget to tell me. I always had to talk to them or call them back with him in the room. He would tell me what to say. Um, he'd say things like, tell them we're having so much fun, that everything's fine. Um, and so I would. And I, to be honest, I was afraid of him. Mm -hmm. um, I had seen him get angry at different things and me, and I just didn't want to push his buttons. So anyway, um, I had, like I said, kept a journal. And I remember just being in the car one day by myself again for like the 90th time. And I was writing and I just was talking about where we were, what we were doing, what city we were in. And I just ended up turning that entry into a prayer. And mind you, just like I had quit dance, I had kind of quit God. I had quit church. I had quit the whole, the whole thing. I was harboring a lot of hurt, um, a lot of rejection um, from, from believers and from, from that. And, and rightly so. But I experienced not one ounce of grace in in that season of my life where I was um, running away from the Lord. So I decided to um, just cut it off. So um, I remember writing and all of a sudden these words came out onto paper, just said, God, if you get me home safe, I'll dance and I'll dance for you. And I had no idea what that meant. Um, I had always danced for myself. I had always danced to compete. I had always danced to become great. I had always danced to be cool or be seen or for the applause. So I honestly believe with all my heart that it wasn't even me that wrote those words. Like it was, it was something else, something bigger. Um, so I saw him coming and I closed my journal really quick, stuffed it in my purse and we were off to the next thing. Um, for the sake of, you know, for, this story and and how incredible God is and um, the next part I'd like to think was like the next day or two days later, but I really don't remember. So, um, but it was very soon after I had written that prayer. Um, he handed me an envelope 
in our hotel room and I just said, oh, what's this? And he said, open it. And I knew it couldn't have been money because he um, didn't give me money, actually. Um, I wasn't allowed to really have money unless he was handing me money to go get something, like go get me this, go get me that. Um, I didn't have debit cards. I didn't even hold my license. Um, he hold, held all of that. So I knew that it couldn't have been money. Um, and then I just opened it and I saw a plane ticket and my heart sank because I didn't read it. I just, a plane ticket to me meant I still had to be with him. I still had to travel with him. We were going to yet another experience. So, and let me tell you, anybody that travels maybe for their job or travels a lot, um, I was not used to this lifestyle. We were in a different hotel every two or three days. Um, we were flying, driving at all hours. We were, I was, yeah, it was, it was not ideal and it was hard. I was physically tired, but I was just emotionally and mentally drained as well, just from, from the travel itself. And it had been four months straight of that with no, with no breaks. So anyway, um, again, opening this plane ticket was not exciting for me and I didn't even read it because why would I, why would I think that that was for me? Um, and he said, he said, read it. And I, I looked at it and it was a one, it was just one ticket and it was just for me with my name on it. And it said, um, Eugene, Oregon destination. And I don't know. I felt so many emotions. I felt relief. I also right away in my mind thought I must've done something wrong. I'm being sent home. But then I didn't think too much about that. I just thought, Oh my gosh, I'm going home. And he looked at me and he said, I'm sending you home. And I said, without you. And he said, yeah. And I just said, okay. And I remember packing and I'm pretty sure my flight left that day or the next morning. And um, all I remember is him giving me a hug before I left. And, and then I went home. I remember not one minute of that flight. I don't remember who picked me up from the airport. I don't remember how I got to my apartment at all. Um, but I do remember what he said to me a few weeks before he sent me home. Actually, he said to me, um, remember when we get back, uh, we are not in a relationship. This is not a thing. And also this did not happen. And I just remember looking at him going, okay, sure. You know, and at that point I hated him so much that I was willing to just take that as truth and and run with it. So getting home, I came home to uh, my apartment being absolutely trashed. My room had been lived in by a mutual friend of me and my roommate. She had let um, him live there in my room without my knowledge while I was paying rent while I was on this trip. So that disappointed me big time. I had been I had been traveling and not seeing my own bed for three and a half, four months. And I just couldn't wait to sleep in my own bed, but I couldn't because somebody else was living there and it was gross and it was dirty and it smelled and they had partied like crazy while I was gone. And I just, I remember walking in and just going, I can't be here. And um, so I called my parents and went to their house and stayed with them for a little bit. 
until I figured out that I needed to move out of that apartment and, and start over with um, something else. So um, those next few days after getting home and actually weeks, most likely, and possibly even months um, were very, very dark. And I don't remember a whole lot. I do remember being very depressed. Um, I was very sad. I was very, um, I didn't come out of my room a whole lot. Um, and that was to be expected. Um, I really didn't, like when I went home that day from the airport, like when he sent me home, I was truly being set free, but I had no idea like even what that meant or, or that I, what I was being set free from. Um, I just thought I don't, I never have to see him again if I don't want to, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, to give a little light into the story, um, entry that day that if God had got me home safe, that I would dance again. And this was again, back in the ancient times when, like my daughter says, the good old days, um, where there was no Google, uh, there was no social media so i didn't know like what dance class i could go take i had dropped out of college i was no longer a part of um the dance program at lcc i was on academic probation from the u of o i mean these are just awesome awesome things that i had done with my life before this time but i really couldn't go anywhere right so but I remembered that before I had left, there was a hip hop class at 24-hour um, fitness, the, the local gym at the time. So I just showed up. And again, this is like miracle upon miracle, right? I didn't even have a membership to the gym. I just showed up. They let me in. I have no idea why. Like I just walked in and went to the class and stood in the back, very insecure, did not want to be there was literally just fulfilling what I said I was gonna do. I thought that maybe I would take one or two weeks and then be done. Um, so lo and behold, the teacher of the class knew me and shouted my name, was like, Lindsay, oh my gosh, where have you been? What's going on? You know, And I was just like, no, 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 no. So I did a little bit of small talk, whatever, um, took the class, hid in the back, hated myself, hated every, every single thing about that class. <laughs> so it was just so hard. Um, yeah. So anyway, moving on, I came back again, which I don't know why, but I did. And the teacher, she, I'll never forget this day. She came up to me and said, Hey, I can't teach this class anymore. You'd be perfect. And I was like, no, I don't want to. And she's like, no, you should. And so she gave me, um, or she gave her boss my number. I interviewed, they hired me on the spot. Again, there should be no reason except explanation of God because I had no resume. Remember I was fired from my last two jobs. I left that part out. <laughs> um, I did not have any experience teaching except for maybe helping choreographing and like captain of high school dance team. I had no actual experience teaching. And the lady just took a chance on me. And I ended up teaching there for six years. And every single thing 
that I have ever done dance wise stemmed from that job, from me saying yes to that. And it's just truly, truly miraculous. Um, and I'd like to say that then I was all good and everything was fine. And then my life is just fast forward to where we are now. But in those next few years, and it, it was four, four years of roller coaster, um, up and down, all over the place, in church for three months, out of church for six and wild and partying, um, still really insecure, trying so hard to get my life right. I worked for my dad at the time. It is not a good fit for me because I had to, again, be alone in an office all day. And that was just not, not my, not my jam, but it was a job. And, but I think just so much of me was like, yearning and burning to be around people so i was going out again and and rekindling friendships and and making making friendships that i actually shouldn't say bad things about these people because i was the one instigating a lot of this and i'm actually friends with some of these people to this day and we've all like turned our lives around which is awesome but i just struggled like that i can't to explain it any other way except for it I struggled and again for anybody watching this like of course on, on from the outside you're like of course you struggled you had no idea what just happened to you you got absolutely no help for what just happened to you I told no one what had just happened I had no idea what had even just happened I just wanted to forget about it um, and and just cover it so that's what I was doing. I was just trying to cover it. Um, I was sleeping around, just trying to cover it, just trying to forget. Um, and then at, right before my 23rd birthday, I was raped. And, and I don't say that word lightly. Y'all, I, I, totally, I totally know that there's so many women that experience incredibly horrific trauma in, in sexual assault. Um, and this was, was not that, but it was still traumatic enough for me to just believe that I was literally like, like worth nothing to anybody. And that even my no didn't mean anything because I said no and, and he didn't stop. So here I am at 23, 24, just completely lost but yet grasping so hard for hope. And I was still dancing. I had gotten the opportunity to lead a dance, a local dance troupe, and I fell in love with leading. I fell in love with, with not, not being the boss, because my husband always says I'm so bossy, but like, that's not what it was about. Like, I fell in love with, with what leadership looked like, like serving people even though i wouldn't have put those two together at that season of my life it really did spark something in me it sparked a joy i had never felt before and again i just got to be around more and more people who shared the same love of, and passion for dance so i was doing that at the same time and and you know i always say sometimes you don't know truly what is helping you heal in that in a period of your life but dance really was my anchor in that, in that period, because it kept me accountable. I had 
rehearsals I had to show up for. I had people that were relying on me. I had shows to plan and things to do. So I showed up for them. But then I was almost like manic depressive behavior because I would throw myself into dancing and leading and planning. And then I would spend a period of time disappeared, depressed, partying, wild, you know, basically self, self abuse. So I am 24 now and um, not right now at this time in my story. <laughs> Sorry, I should say that differently. So now I'm, now I'm 24 and trying to really balance all of, all of that, which it really was a juggling act. But, but deep down I knew I wanted to get, I wanted to get healthy. So I had a friend and he, um, he was just my best friend and he introduced me to his godparents and it was such a beautiful um, relationship that ensued. They loved me for who I was. They would um, invite me over for dinner, bake me cookies, um, doing all these things for me. And I just felt like I had like a second set of parents um, watching over me and loving me for, for who I was. And um, I remember them calling me on a Saturday night. The mom did, her name is Kim and I owe like my life to her, but she called me and she just said, um, would you like to go to church with us the next day? And I was like, sure. And again, I had not been to church in so long. And um, yeah, so I just said yes. And I remember being late for church. Like I was late for everything and still am <laughs> sometimes, but for different reasons this time. Um, but I remember showing up and really like regretting it the moment I walked in because it was such a small room and there was only like 75 people in the room and everybody saw me come in late and I just was so embarrassed. And of course the people I was going with, they sat in the front row and they just waved me down when they saw me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on? So anyway, I go there and get in, get settled and worship has already started. and. The pastor knew me because he was my my friend's uncle and so he knew me and he knew of me and I'm sure he knew a little bit about my lifestyle um, but definitely didn't know any details or my story or anything like that um, but he stopped church he I remember he straight up stopped church and um, he just said hey there's somebody in here who God is waiting on and I'm not going to continue service until until we do some business with the Lord. And I just was like, oh, who could that be? Like, okay, this is weird. Like, I grew up in Faith Center, Eugene, and nothing like that would have ever happened there. Um, it's an amazing church. I'm so thankful for it. But that was that was weird to me. Like, that was very maybe uncomfortable. So he asked everybody to just close their eyes out of respect for whoever it was. And um, he just asked the worship team to keep singing. So they did. And I mean, it seemed like an eternity. It was probably like two minutes, but to me, it felt like the longest time ever. Um, if you, if you grew up in church or even if you didn't, you know how when everybody tells, or like a teacher, even at school tells everybody to close their eyes 
you, I was always the kid that wanted to look around and see what was happening. Like, I want to see, like, at church, for example, if they're asking people to receive Jesus, I would be like, ooh, who's doing it? You know, when I was little. Or at, at school, like, teacher would say, everybody heads down, like, we're going to play heads up, seven up. And I would want to look, you know? So that was rising up in me. And also because I was really annoyed and I wanted to just get church on and done and go home. Mm -hmm. So I looked up and mind you, right before I looked up, my whole body, head to toe, like sweating. And my heart was felt like it was going to beat out of its chest or out of my chest. So I look up and the pastor is standing in front of me and he's just staring at me <laughs> and he's very tall. Mark, you know who this person is, PK, Pastor Keith. And he is towering over me and he's just like this presence. And I, I just felt, I, it was God for me. He's not God, but it was the presence of God. And he said, it's you. And I was like, yeah, it is. And I just remember crying and crying and crying and weeping and him just the whole church praying over me. And he asked me if I wanted to rededicate my life to the Lord that day. And I, I did. And it was beautiful. And I just will never forget it. Um, and again, I would love to say that from that day forward, my life took a complete turnaround and here we are, but it was still such a struggle. So, you know, long story short, six days later, I was drinking with my friend and we were headed to Portland and an unfortunate car accident when which we should have been either majorly injured or not, not alive. And um, we walked away with, I walked away with a scratch on my neck and she was completely fine. Um, I remember sitting in the middle of the Portland freeway. My car is completely smashed in. Like the front is completely all up to the steering wheel on my side because I had um, hit the, the median. Um, my car had spun. I hit the median going about 45 miles an hour and my airbags did not ignite. And I remember sitting there figuring out that I was alive and I heard plain as day, God say to me, you're trying to go this way and I need you this way. And I just was like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm yours. Like what, what do I have to do? And over the next year, again, it's not something to easily just walk away from because I was addicted. I was addicted to, to that lifestyle. I was addicted to the attention. I was also covering so much hurt and rejection and just trying to forget. And so, you know, just with the help of the Lord and, and, and starting to really make boundaries in my life and, and choose my friends wisely and all these things, I um, met my husband. And at the time too, I had um, taken a job as a nanny. I wanted to be better for them. I wanted to be better for the kids I was teaching at a local dance studio. I wanted to be better just for everybody. And I just realized, I was like, I'm a leader, I'm a teacher, I'm an example. If it, does, it doesn't go anywhere unless it starts with me. Like if I am not 
doing the same things that I'm asking everybody else to do, then, then I'm a fake and I'm a phony. So at that point, um, I still was struggling a little bit with, um, with social life and wanting to still go out to the bars. I just wouldn't drink or I wouldn't, I wouldn't like party, you know? So I met my husband and, um, he was just so different than any guy I'd ever, ever met. And in fact, we just started out as friends. Um, we spent several months just being friends. And then, um, you know, this is an important part of my story too, because I want, I want people to understand that things don't always happen perfectly. As much as you're trying to live for the Lord, you, you mess up, you mess up and there's grace. So um, I messed up. Um, we had sex and I got pregnant and let me also tell you something that might be slightly controversial with some believers, but in all the years that I had been sexually active and at this point it had been seven years that I, I had been sexually active. I never used birth control, not, not once and of any form. And I never got pregnant. Um, I slept with my husband once and got pregnant. And at the time he was just my boyfriend. So I don't see that as being a coincidence at all. I believe God is in everything. He has grace um, for me and for you. Um, he gave me the gift of my firstborn. Um, and that is what turned my life around. Like I had been doing well, happy, holding down a job, going to church, doing all these things. And it wasn't until I was responsible for another life inside of me that that was like, oh, okay, you really are serious, like about the purpose you have for my life. Um, had a baby, got married within two years. Um, the Lord made a very, very um, apparent, it was very clear to me that we were supposed to open our own dance studio. And um, ironically, I had gotten fired from a teaching job at that time, but not for the reasons I got fired from before. This time was I got fired because of my beliefs and because of my, my walk with the Lord that she didn't agree with. And so she let me go. And then at that point, my dad came to me and said, it's time for you to have, have your own thing. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it for you. And so I was like, okay. And here we are, we are now um, nine, no, I'm sorry, 10, almost 11 years since, since that happened. And um, yeah, now just uh, fully living, um, walking with the Lord, um, messing up all the time, of course, but not in the same way. Um, have three kids. Um, I have a party business, which is ironic as well. And, <laughs> and um, love having a dance studio. It's my first love. It's my passion. But, um, you know, Mark, you have said to me in the last couple of years that the Lord was giving me a bigger, a bigger mantle and a bigger um, calling um, besides the studio. And that has really started to take shape in the last two years. And so now I'm able to uh, speak and be brought to different situations, different churches, different schools, um, different events. And I've been giving my testimony, but also um, preaching the word of God um, anywhere people will have me. So, um, so yeah. And I'm also um, 
a huge advocate for rescuing and um, helping survivors from trafficking. Um, and, and, you know, my story has so many elements to it. Sometimes I forget to kind of bookend this part, but I legitimately did not know what had happened to me until after my second child was born. When my daughter was two years old, I was at a church retreat and heard a friend of mine giving her testimony about how she was trafficked horrifically right here in Lane County and like at the Hilton countdown. And I remember my heart just breaking for her because I was listening to her story. I was listening. I was, I was praying even as she was saying it, like for her healing. And all of a sudden, after she was done, I realized that all the things she had been said, had, had been said to her, all the things that had been kind of done and some of these things that she had experienced were exactly what I had walked through. And then I realized that happened to me. So at that point, I just really had only told like one or two really close friends and um, my husband. And then I remember just in the several years after that, it took another like four years after that, when somebody came to me and said, I think, I think you should start telling your story. And then I remember sitting across from Diana Jans, who is the most incredible woman. She helps survivors of trafficking right here in Eugene. She lets them live with her and she helps them rehabilitate and be transitioned back into the world. I was meeting with her about something. And again, my heart started beating fast. I started sweating. And I just said, I'm, I think I'm supposed to tell you something. And she said, great, tell me. And I told her like the two minute synopsis of what had happened to me, which is so hard to do. And she looked at me and she goes, Lindsay, do you know you were trafficked? And I was like, no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. That's like girls in shackles and chains or being forced to sleep with multiple people every day, you know? And she goes, no, by definition, you were trafficked. And, and that's part of your story. And she's like, and would you like to start speaking? at things like about your story and I said yeah absolutely I mean I was in shock I mean it still shocks me to this day that this is what the Lord would ask me to um to put forth and to go public about I mean listen I would like to be talking about anything else <laughs> besides this but the, the the nugget of it is is that people's life isn't perfect and and we go through things we suffer and, and the lord actually says that in the bible he's like in this world you will have trouble but i have overcome the world and i just think if my suffering can help even one person and it has it has helped hundreds then i know that it was worth it and i would do it all over again um one thing i had told my friend once is that my heart was really breaking one time for girls that were trapped in, in trafficking. And I just said, oh my gosh, I think I need to quit everything. I need to stop doing the studio. I need to go start rescuing children. Like that's what I wanna do. And she goes, Lindsay, I, I think you are rescuing children. And I said, how? And she goes, by preventing it at the studio. She goes, what, what was it that got you through those years after this happened? I said, dance, to be honest. And she's like, okay. So do you think that in any way, shape, or form that these children are, are actually gaining confidence that you didn't have, gain, getting hope, getting purpose, getting all these things that will actually be preventative 
in in getting themselves into a situation or not getting themselves but being presented with a situation and then not knowing what to do with it or not knowing how to walk away not knowing how to get help and all of a sudden my eyes were open and it's like there's there's two forms of rescue there's there's the people that are on the front lines and going in and getting the kids and helping them rehabilitate and then there's also the very important job of of preventing it and and that's what i believe that um i'm to do. So, so yeah. So how did your when did when did the opportunity present itself for you to have a conversation with your mother and your father about this this experience and its impact and you know obviously we're both parents and I can only imagine the struggle they must have gone through hearing this maybe feeling like they failed or uh, if I could say this as a precursor to this before you answer, I know uh, uh, someone who was raped. And it was very hard for her parents to comprehend. It was very hard for her parents to understand. And uh, in the in the realm of that very deep and powerful emotion and trying to cope with this reality that was part blame on her. Yeah. Because... It might sound very um, cruel from people that hear that statement, but the mind tries to grasp such things, especially if it's your child. If you don't mind, if you feel like you can talk about that uh, moment in time where you're able to have that conversation with your parents and what that was like navigating through that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's still like a healing journey, I'm sure. Um, I didn't know that my parents didn't know what had happened to me until just actually a couple years ago. This sounds like kind of crazy because it's been so long. Um, I think I just always assumed they knew and they never asked. So I just never told. Um, and that probably stems from a lot of like, like as a parent, you just don't want to know. <laughs> um, and that's okay. Um, but I remember being at my sister and brother-in-law's house a couple years ago, and I ended up telling them what happened because I was starting to tell my story publicly. And I, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't know whether they knew or not. And so my sister said to me, gosh, this is so crazy because mom and dad called me after you left and basically thought that you had run away. Like that's, that's what they saw was like you just running away. And I was like, wow, okay. And that, and that's fine. Like that was their perception and, and it probably looked like that. Um, and then I started getting just asked like time after time after time to share my story publicly. So I figured it was time to tell them what had happened. So um, I remember being on the radio, like on a morning show in January of 2018, I believe, and um, realizing that any of my parents' friends could be listening and that they didn't know all this. And I know that that would be hurtful. 
that I was telling the world and yet I hadn't told them. So um, my husband works for my dad. And so um, I asked him to just kind of set up an appointment with my parents and, or, or maybe I did, I don't remember it. It just somehow an appointment was set for me to come over and Dusty was going to come with me. And I remember my dad not wanting to wait for the appointment. He was like, what's going on? She doesn't make appointments unless like, what's going on? You know? So my husband ended up telling him a little bit. And then of course my dad wanted to like protect my mom and, and was really hesitant about me talking to her. But my dad ended up not being there, which I'm still kind of bummed about, but it's okay. Like I, I, I get it as a parent, like it's just hard to hear, you know? Um, and yeah, I told my mom, I don't think that she wanted to hear most of what I had to say. So it was a very brief conversation. It's um, a difficult conversation to have. Um, she didn't want any details or anything like that. And I was fine, but it is hard um, because I understand as a parent what they could be feeling, but I also am just, you know, wanting that unconditional like support and love. And, and I think, I think that'll come um, maybe with time, yeah. but it is really hard for them to accept that this is what the Lord has asked me to be public about. Um, I think that there's a generation that is, that is their generation that is very, um, it's, it's not that it's non-communicative. It's just that it's uh, a little more private, probably a lot more private. And that's okay. Um, I am not, I am an open book. Like I am not a private person. I, I like my alone time and I, I like to be alone because I am around people so much. I, I, in order for me to stay healthy, I like being, having private moments mm -hmm. with myself, with God, with my kids, my husband, whatever, but I am fully at the Lord's usage for all the days of my life. And I don't care what that makes myself look like, but I also have to be very sensitive to the way it makes my parents feel. So I, I have a fine line to walk. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is still some healing that needs to happen there. And who knows, they might be watching, so. <laughs> well, you know, for those that, those that are watching, I would encourage anyone to not rush to judgment. Yeah. Not rush to judgment against you, against your, your family, against the circumstances. Yeah. But to listen and to hear you. I took several pages of notes and all the details that you gave all the markings of vulnerability, uh, all the characteristics of that vulnerability that made it so easy for someone to come into your life and for you to be emotionally, psychologically prepped for such a moment and not even know it. 
but mm -hmm. someone else looking at you and thinking, okay, now's the time. I don't know yep. if, if your friend had worked for this individual. Yes, and, I, I, yes, she had. <laughs> and so maybe she was aware she could observe that you would have been the perfect candidate for that situation. And by introducing you into that situation, she was relieving herself of that situation or yep. someone else. And I, I don't say that lightly. I don't say that with any dishonor or disrespect to your friend because Correct. those are difficult, difficult things to endure and survive and overcome. And uh, there's a lot. It's there's a lot of external factors that are involved. And you know, this is this isn't really the venue to get into all of the time frame to get into all of that. But it's complex. And yeah. all, all the notes that I took while you were talking show the, the complexity of what was taking place in the environment of your life. Yeah. Now, how did you, once you began to realize what had happened, the severity of what had happened, did you ever find yourself struggling with postpartum depression and needing counseling or you know, once you get married, uh, I'm, you know, I know Dusty, I know your husband, I know how much he loves you. And I know that he serves his family and this joint mission that you have of Identity Dance. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about some of those areas and how this experience impacted that and some of the things you had to do to heal? Yeah. Um, and that is such a beautiful question um, because I think people think the way that I talk or the way that I look right now or that my life has just, all of it's just gone away. Like all of the, what I experienced and all my hurt or my, all of that, the horrific part of it has gone away. Um, and yes, I 100% believe time heals all wounds. Time is huge. Um, I believe the timing of me realizing what had happened to me was perfect. It was God. Um, I was already loved unconditionally. I already had two beautiful children. I already ran a dance ministry. I already had purpose in my life. Um, so, so the wake up call to my eyes were blinded. And then when the veil is revealed or the veil is taken off, um, as far as, uh, healthy, um, communication and also just a re re um what's the word revamping my uh basically intimacy had been skewed for me it had been abused it had been sorry i have something in my eye um <laughs> it had been completely shifted and turned upside down on its head to what it was supposed to look like partly my doing not just in this situation, but in all of my actions and my choices. And, and then also out of my control with what had been done to me and the fact that I just needed to, again, not think about it and shut off. So for me, going into a marriage where I was loved unconditionally and now it was completely, quote unquote, okay to be sexually intimate with this person that I committed to for the rest of my life. That was 
a struggle on some on some level. Um, I am really good at acting and <laughs> pretending, and so sometimes I think in the well in the first part of my marriage, to be honest, like it was completely fine. Everything was great. It was beautiful. Like I never suffered postpartum depression after um, my firstborn. Like I just, I mean, everything was, was how it should be. You know, it was like a picture of heaven on earth. And then after um, my second one, uh, after Jazzy, I, I think I struggled mostly with just my actually no sorry i'm getting my timeline a little confused it was before jazzy i was really struggling with my own self-image just who i was um the studio was doing was doing good but there was a lot of transition happening and god was actually getting ready and preparing us to move to the place we're in now there was a lot of spiritual warfare i was i was kind of a wreck um emotionally and i cried all the time and i just didn't know really why um, I tried seeing a couple, a couple people within the church, tried getting a mentor. Um, a lot of those things helped, um, but I just was an emotional wreck. And I think that a lot of what had happened to me was kind of coming. It was, it was, I was being prepared for it to kind of be released. Um, and, and again, my husband, like you said, you know him and a lot of people who might be watching this know him and know that he's just so patient and all the times that I was up and down emotionally or just really um, kind of so physical touch is not my love language and it never has been and so that has been hard because physical touch is his love language and quality time and so we're completely opposite but yet I've got all this trauma regarding physical touch and then just watching the Lord just slowly take down like brick by brick with allowing myself to be to be touched, to be loved, to be um, loved unconditionally um, through pregnancies, through post-pregnancies, through um, loving myself, through not loving myself. I mean, there's just there's just so much to to a healthy marriage. Um, I mean, I'm not saying this because I'm proud of it, but I think Dusty and I have really done a good job of going to the Lord with our issues and going to each other with our issues and not um, to other to outside people like counselors or anything like that i have not seen i have never ever seen a counselor for any of this and i again that's not saying that i disdain that it's just for me I, the lord was my counselor and i had so many incredible and still do have incredible um moments with him where he really replaces the things that have happened um, and it's not to say that some people don't need don't need that i i can tell with somebody whether they need whether they need to really get it out and talk to somebody who's professional in fact people don't know this but my my second major in when i started college it was going to be dance with a minor in psychology because i wanted to be some sort of a dance counselor which is really funny because now i do that just without a degree like i talk to people all the time about what they've been through and i teach dance but I don't have a degree, so I guess I just have the degree of life. Um, but yeah, hopefully that answers your question. It's kind of all over the place. I think it's an ongoing journey. Um, I am never going to be completely healed until I'm in heaven of everything that that um, the enemy has tried to steal, kill, and destroy. 
Um, there's always going to be issues because we're human and we're not perfect. Um, but I believe that in the last, I would say since I had my third um, child really grown um, with a maturity in my emotions and, and taking them to the Lord and really knowing when, when and where things are appropriate. Um, Dusty and I try really hard to, um, and, and it's not a, it's, it's completely effortless with us because we didn't spend a whole lot of time actually dating before we got married. And um, so we go on a lot of dates like now. And that's something that we love and do. And I actually have told people in uh, suggesting when they are struggling in their marriage, I'm like, when's the last time you went on a date? When's the last time you looked at each other and had nobody pulling on you, asking you to wipe their butt or their mouth or whatever, and, and just eating together or going to a movie or having in-home dates or just all these things. And these are just practical things I always try to tell people about a healthy marriage is that you said yes for a reason. You Love doesn't fade. It should only grow stronger as you get to know the person more over the years. Um, your love will change over the years because maybe you don't look the same or whatever, but for a healthy marriage, you have to continue to fall in love with each other every day. And I watch the way that my husband um, treats me and treats our kids. And I guess had I known, it's always hindsight is 2020, had I known what God had, had what God had for me, I would have said no to every single thing that came that was an imposter. Mm -hmm. But I also know that I wouldn't be able to reach as many people as I have and also be on the same level of people sometime when they tell me they're hurting. Like I can understand because I've been there and I've faced rejection and it, it sucks. And this is, this is how I've overcome it, you know? And so, yeah, hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> um, there's a lot to it. There's a lot, there's a lot of different aspects that are still in the, pl in play, but I, but I, just to answer your question very simply, I definitely struggled within the, the healthiness of our marriage. I struggled. Um, but God gave me a man who was ready to struggle along with me and just to be patient and just wait, wait for, for that to, to heal. So <clears throat> we're winding down with time here real quick. What yeah. would you say to parents mm -hmm. that have children like you were struggling with rejection, you were struggling with being accepted, you were struggling with uh, fitting in properly. You were kind of rebellious. You had made you made decisions not to listen. That kind of prepped a lot of things for yeah. you. What would you say to parents that are concerned watching their kids, but maybe they're afraid? They don't know what to ask or how to yeah. ask, or they maybe it's it's not their place. What would you say to encourage them? Yeah, um, I would say really just know know your kiddo's life. Um, know who they're talking to, know their friends. Um, even if that means you're having their friend group over to your house, make it a safe place that they want to be at home. Um, I know that's hard for teenagers. They wanna be so far from home. They wanna go out on their own. Um, give your kiddos freedom, but make them earn it. Um, uh, talk to them, um, really build, build trust within within uh, your relationship um, also really encourage 
whatever your kiddo's passionate about, in, I know it's kind of a hard time right now because a lot of things are, you know, not the same, but encourage your kiddo's passion because um, I actually, I have to confess something. I used to think passion was a terrible word. I used to think passion meant, okay, if I'm passionate about something, it means I'm worshiping it more than I'm worshiping God. And until I became, looked at passion in a different way, like Jesus had to have had passion because he went to the cross for all of us. Nothing but passion can make you do that. Passion is a strong emotion that makes you endure no matter what. So people, I think, say that their passion fades for different things. I just think that that's on you, you know, sometimes because we have to continually reignite our passion um, for things, especially when you know that God has called you to it. Sure, my passion for like performing and dancing as much as I used to has faded with time and just maturity and responsibilities that have shifted and it's no longer feeding an insecurity in me. So I could live with it, I could live without it. But the Lord uses our passions to, to not only heal us, but also heal others. So um, one of the biggest things I say to people who ask me what to do to get their life back on track, what to do to feel hope, is like just get involved with something that, that makes you joyful. Like, like if, if it's dance, great. If it's singing, great. If it's art, whatever, like if it's sports, do it like you know just whatever it is that that really makes you come alive there's that's not a mistake i really don't believe that that athletes play and are gifted and that's not from the lord um when it becomes not from the lord is when you worship it or when it becomes bigger than god but yeah wrapping that all up in a pretty bow like <laughs> parents your kids are called to something the sooner you see that and figure that out, the more you can help cultivate it and support it and, and do whatever it takes to really encourage them, continually tell them how much you love them, continually tell them that even if they make mistakes, you're still gonna love them anyway, um, continually support them, be around, um, check their phones, <laughs> like their phones are not private, you should have the code and be checking conversations and checking their social media. If they have social media that you're not allowed to follow, that's, that should not be a thing. Um, and just statistically, trafficking happens so much online and with, within games, within, you know, it's a different conversation, but within Instagram and Snapchat and all of these things. So if course you're going to trust your child and say oh my child would never talk to a stranger what if it's not a stranger what if this person has made a friendship i mean look at the way that i was coerced i was there was a relationship built eventually and like there was i, I trusted him because my roommate set me up with him so it's not always the stranger on the street in the mm -hmm. scary mask like it's it's people that were around already um that have built our trust so, so really know who's around your kids, what, who they're talking to, but, but ultimately I think it's more preventative to where if you give your kiddo the confidence to know who they are, the opportunities to build confidence and purpose, they can look somebody right in the eye and say, nope, sorry, I'm worth more than this. 
Now, before we close, what is the name of uh, this new podcast series you started or the podcast? Oh, so um, it's, um, is it the one that my friend's podcast, the Bethany Bravery? No. Bringing her hope? No, what is mine? Didn't you start a new <laughs> ministry, 180 or something? Like oh, that? yes, yes. It's not a podcast. Um, sorry. It's fine. I was like, oh, wow. Did I start a podcast? Um, <laughs> and I didn't know it. Um, it's called 180. Yes. My my kind of like side ministry. Um, some people have side hustles. Mine is like just a side ministry. Um, and that is called 180 because of the dramatic turnaround that my life took and what I believe that other people can turn their life around. And my motto is it's never too late to turn your life around. And so I actually, um, it's really simple. I just, uh, people make coffee appointments with me or, um, you know, whatever they're comfortable with, especially right now. But um, we just talk about what's going on in their life. And I give them um, an ear and advice if they want it. And yeah, I just basically like to bring hope into people's feeds too. I try to post um, positive, encouraging, even hard things um, to talk about through my um, 180 social media. And um, yeah, we just, uh, it's something that the Lord gave to me in 2017. I was afraid to kind of pull the trigger on it because we were, I had a newborn and also we had just launched our, our event um, business and the studio and trying to remain balanced. I was like, Lord, what are you asking me to do? And what's really cool is that it doesn't take very much of my time. 180, it just, it has a name and people can be encouraged by it. Um, I want it to be something bigger one day, meaning like I want it to like flow to where it's even supporting my family somehow, or it, it basically is like a, um, a, what's the word? Like I've, I've basically been able to compartmentalize the, my testimony and my story and help others like work through it, work through their, whatever they're walking through. Now, if anyone wants to reach out to you after watching this, how can they yeah. uh, contact with you? Sure. Um, you can um, email me. It's lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, at identitydance.com. Um, you can uh, follow and look at any of my social media handles. I have um, my personal one. I have my 180 one. Um, I have my identity dance one. I mean, they're basically like you just can search them up and, and, I'm, and they're there. Um, Facebook is a great place to connect with me on. I love chatting with people over Facebook. And again, I love um, seeing people in person and just hearing hearing their story and seeing God work in their life, so. Very good. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today, Lindsay Cooper, entrepreneur, business owner, identity dance company in Springfield, Oregon, sharing with us her story of uh, overcoming and surviving sex trafficking. And I hope that If you have any questions for her, you'll reach out to her via the social media and the other outlets she's given and understand that there's still more to this story. Yes. Those of you that will hear this, uh, I ask you to listen with an open heart and an open mind. It is very complex and it takes a lot of hard work to decipher and yeah. to process and to navigate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, be kind. Yeah.
be be kind be kind to her her family uh, the extended family this is a lot for for all of us to try to understand and come to terms with mm -hmm. uh, Lindsay, i want to thank you for your humility today your sincerity your openness and for you offering this opportunity for others to hear your story and mm -hmm. to hear your life touch their life oh thank you yeah i will say one thing i wanted to tell people um because a lot of people say like well how what can we do what can we how can we get involved um so next thursday is national human trafficking awareness day and there's just so many things out there you can just google that and anywhere you're listening from Eugene, Oregon, there's a march happening. It, um, we're calling, or the people that are organizing it, it's like get loud for our children. And we've seen a lot of people get loud for the oppressed and racism and all these things. And so there's gonna be a big um, march in Eugene, a peaceful um, one, just saying end human trafficking. And it's um, getting loud for our children. There's a couple of fundraisers happening where you can go get pizza from Maud. Um, on Monday, uh, August 3rd, there's just some incredible people in this town fighting for our children. And the thing is, is that we need more people um, raising their voice for the children. I always say, imagine it was if it was your own child mm -hmm. and and they they were caught up in this lifestyle and they were they were taken and they're they can't get out. Mm -hmm. And what would you do? What would you do for them? What would you do? And most parents, I would say 100% of us would say we would die to find our child. Like we would raise our voice so loud that we would, we would find them and we'd stop at nothing. So there are children right here in this town, in this state, in, this, in Portland, all up and down I-5 that, that are being taken. And um, sold into this lifestyle. And I just, um, people need to join the fight. So look up um, National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. It's next Thursday and there's lots of things going on. So Very good. thank you. We'll yeah. get back in touch uh, again soon. We'll continue yeah. the conversation because there's still a lot to talk about. Yeah. So my best to you and your husband okay. and your beautiful thank you, family. Mark. We'll look thank forward you. to talking again real soon. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.